Good morning, everyone. We'll get started with our Sunday school. If you all want to come forward, there are handouts in the back if you haven't gotten one. Today we'll start uh, a short series on Christ's incarnation. Uh, so before we get into it, let's open with prayer. I'll be reading a prayer from the ancient church about Christmas. I was reading through this earlier this week. I thought it was appropriate. So let's join in prayer. Father, what mere human can declare the glory of the all-life giver who stepped down from the majesty and humbled himself to become humanity? You who lifted up humanity in your birth, lift up my weak mind to declare your birth and proclaim your grace. How amazing is it that the Son dwelled completely in a body, that it was enough for him. Your will was fully contained, yet your bounds reached wholly to the Father. Blessed be he who, though without bounds, was bound. Who can explain how, though you dwelled wholly in a body, you also dwelled wholly in all. Your majesty is concealed from us while your grace is revealed before us. I will be silent, O Lord of majesty, and I will tell of your grace. Your grace clung to you while it bowed you down to our worst. Your grace made you a baby and your grace made you a man. Your grace straightened and enlarged your majesty. Blessed is the might that became little and became great. Glory to you who became lowly, though your nature is lofty. By your own will you became man, though you are God by nature. Blessed be your glory which put on our image. Your hope brought new hope when ours had broken down. Blessed be the one who brought good news of hope. Double was the happiness of those who saw your birth and your day. Yet also happy are those who have not seen, but who have believed. Blessed is your happiness that is added to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're starting our series on the incarnation. <clears throat> and the word incarnation, if, if you don't know what it means, you know, some of us hear these words a lot and we don't actually think about what they actually mean. Um, incarnation means in the flesh, uh, obviously in, and then carne, uh, in the flesh. The Greek is in sarkos, if there's anybody who cares about that, in the flesh, or enfleshed, you could say. And so incarnation is concerned with Christ taking on human flesh. And that's different than simply being born. We're not just talking about Christ's birth. We're talking about something bigger than Christ's birth. To illustrate that, you know, I wouldn't say my son Asher was incarnated on October 20th. That sounds silly, because incarnate implies pre-incarnate. If you're talking about somebody who is enfleshed, then that implies a pre-flesh existence. My son didn't exist before he was conceived, but Christ did. And so that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about Christ's pre-flesh existence. How did he exist before he became human, before he took on flesh? And so what was Christ's pre-flesh existence? Well, before entering history and becoming finite man, Christ eternally existed as the infinite God. In the incarnation, the human nature of Christ was united to the second person of the Trinity. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Christ's divinity this morning. We're going to talk about the person who is united to the human nature of Jesus. And so first... The first point in your outline, how do we know that Christ is infinite God? There are obviously many people who would deny that Jesus is God. 
but how, ca- how can we know that he is God? How do we know he wasn't just another human born like any other human? How do we know that he had this pre-flesh existence? So first, our confessional data, and the reason why I'm going here first is that it just summarizes the biblical doctrine very well. So we're gonna have a summary and then we'll go into some scripture. First, Westminster Confession 8.2 says, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature. That's such a weighty sentence. It's very full. But it's, it beautifully illustrates that this wasn't just a human who popped into existence when he was conceived. Rather, it was somebody who existed beforehand as the eternal son of God who was equaled with the Father and then took upon man's nature in time. Westminster Shorter Catechism 21 just is so succinct and, and wonderful. Who is the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. That beautifully summarizes basically all of Christology, <laughs> um, that Jesus is the eternal son of God, he became man, and he continues to be God and man, two distinct natures, one person. That's, that is orthodox Christology right there. And so this last one is going to introduce uh, kind of the main point of this, this heading. Westminster Larger Catechism 11. How does it appear that the Son and the Holy Ghost are equal, are our God equal with the Father? Answer, the scriptures manifest that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father, ascribing unto them such names, attributes, works, and worship as are proper only to God. So this is how we're going to see in Scripture that Jesus is the eternal and infinite God because Scripture ascribes such names, attributes, works, and worship as are proper only to God that ascribes it to Jesus. And so we'll go through each of those in turn. First, Christ's divine names. We have all of these Scripture references. First, Old Testament, Christ's divine names. This first one from Isaiah is really interesting. So in Isaiah 6, we see this um, vision that Isaiah has when he's called to prophesy, and he sees the Lord. That's what, it, that's what it says, Isaiah 6, 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So he sees the glory of the Lord God in the temple, the heavenly temple. But then you turn to John twelve forty one, where John quotes a, a prophecy of Isaiah, And then he explains, John explains, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And he's speaking of Jesus when John says that. And so John is applying this vision that Isaiah had of the Lord's glory and saying that Isaiah actually saw Jesus's glory. And so he's describing the divine name to Jesus. Isaiah 9, 6, a little more simple. This is the the very popular Christmas verse. For unto us a child is born, Uh, To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. His name shall be called Mighty God. And so this Messiah, this son that is born, is the Mighty God. Seems pretty simple. Isaiah 43, uh, this is also a very common one that we probably all know. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. And then this, in Matthew 3, 3, is, is uh, described as a prophecy of, uh, of John the Baptist. 
who is the one preparing a way for the Lord, but the Lord is now Jesus when you come to Matthew 3. Uh, and so we see that this prophecy of a person making a way for the Lord, he's making a way for Jesus. And so Jesus is the Lord. He has that divine name. Uh, Isaiah, 5, uh, Isaiah 45, 23. Um, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. This is the Lord speaking. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And then you go to Philippians 2, 10, and 11. And Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And so we're applying this, this prophecy about the Lord, we're applying it to Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, Jeremiah 23, uh, it says, I will, raise up a, 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 I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So this righteous branch who is the Messiah, his name is the Lord is our righteousness. He has that divine name. Uh, and last for Old Testament, Joel 2.32 with Romans 10.13. You could also include Acts 2, I think Acts 2.36, something like that. Uh, Joel 2.32 says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then you go to Romans 10.13 and Paul says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, that is Jesus, will be saved. So we have these divine names, even in the Old Testament ascribed to Jesus. And then in the New Testament, we have, you know, some very familiar ones. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word is called, of course, the Word is Jesus in this passage, and the Word is God. Uh, he has that divine name. Acts, oh, sorry, First John 20, 28. This is a very simple one. When uh, Jesus raises from the dead, the apostles see him, but Thomas, obviously, uh, he's called Doubting Thomas, but he actually has this beautiful confession when he actually sees Jesus. He says, my Lord and my God. When he sees Jesus' resurrected body, he says, my Lord and my God. So he's calling Jesus Lord and God. Acts 20, uh, This says that... Uh, Take, uh, it, it, Paul is speaking to the elders of a church and he says, care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And of course, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, they do not have blood. But Jesus, who died on the cross, obviously, he has blood and he is God who bought the church with his own blood. Romans 9, 5, uh, Paul says, He's speaking of Israel. He says, to Israel belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul is calling Christ God over all. Philippians 2, 6. Uh, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Paul is saying Jesus was in the form of God. Uh, in 1 Timothy 3.16, this was interesting because you look at it in your ESV and you don't actually see this, but if you go back to the KJV, there's some textual variants that the ESV uh, disagrees with the KJV about, but in the KJV, this verse says, uh, God was manifest in the flesh. Our ESV says he was manifest in the flesh. There are several different options textually there, but one likely option is that it says God was manifest in the flesh. So it's saying that Jesus is God, obviously. Titus 2.13, uh, 
waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. It's pretty clear. 1 John 5.20 uh, says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So his Son is the true God and eternal life. And then, of course, uh, Revelation 1.8 and then 22.13. This applies what is really, it's a reworking of the divine name, I am who I am. Uh, it says who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It's applying that to Jesus in Revelation, that Jesus is the one who is and who was and who is to come. And that's, that's just the divine name, I am who I am. So those, those texts are really important. You know, it's kind of dry just to read them back to back, but I think it's important for us to read because there are obviously people, and we'll get to this later, but there are people who would deny the validity of these texts, especially Jehovah's Witnesses, if you ever have them knocking on your door. They'll open a John 1.1, 1, 1, and in their Bible, it says something completely different because they have their own translation of the Bible that has kind of taken out these clear uh, Christological meanings. So I think it's helpful to go through those. Those were Christ's divine names in the Old Testament and New Testament. Now Christ's attributes, his divine attributes. And this is not an extensive list. There are obviously more that I did not um, include because if Christ is true God, he is equal with the Father and he has all of the attributes that the Father has. And so we could probably find scriptural reference for every attribute that the Father has applying to Jesus. But right here we just have some, uh, some of the main ones that would apply uniquely to God, I guess you could say. I guess his incommunicable attributes, that's what I'm getting at. So self-existence, uh, this is also called aseity, self-existence, that, uh, that God exists, n nothing created God. He is his own source of life, I guess. It's kind of difficult to explain. John 5.26 says, just as the Father has life in himself, so he has given the Son to have life in himself. So Christ has self-existence. He has eternity. Isaiah 9, 6 said, everlasting father. His name shall be called everlasting father. That's, a, that's the term, it's probably olam, term for eternity or everlasting. John 1, 1, of course, in the beginning was the word and the word was God, and the word was with God. Uh, in the beginning, he was there before. You know, that in the beginning is the same in the beginning as Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning before creation. So Christ is eternal. Uh, let's see, Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he has eternity, he is before all things. He is also all present, you could also say omnipresent, that's the uh, fancy theological way of saying it. He is all present. Matthew 18.20, that famous verse where Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am with them. Uh, uh, Matthew 28.20, uh, he says, even to the end of the age, I am with you. Uh, yeah, John 3.13 is another interesting one. Uh, our ESV doesn't have this, but uh, certain manuscripts do have it. It says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. That's what some of the manuscripts say. So it says, the Son of Man descended from heaven, so he's on earth, but he is in heaven kind of describing that Jesus, even though he was dwelling on earth, he was still the eternal, infinite God. 
who is all present. Jesus is all knowing or uh, omniscient. Uh, John 2, 24 to 25, speaking of Jesus, says Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and no one needed to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He knew what was in people because he knew all things. Uh, John 21, 17 He said to him the third time, Simon, uh, son of Peter, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said uh, the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And so we see Peter confessing that Jesus is all-knowing. He knows everything. And, and, And if this wasn't true, if Peter was wrong about this, then Jesus probably would have corrected him, but he doesn't. Um, So we see Peter confessing that Jesus knew everything uh, and another, just this last one, uh, in Revelation 2.23, this is in the midst of the letters to the seven churches. Jesus says, uh, all of the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give each of you according to your works. And so Jesus is the one who searches mind and heart. He knows what's in our minds and hearts. He is all-powerful. Again, Isaiah 9, 6. His name shall be called Mighty God. Mighty, all-powerful. Uh, John 10, 29 to 30. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So if his Father is greater than all, and he is one with the Father, then he is also greater than all, right? Uh, Philippians three twenty one. Uh, Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Christ has a power that is able to subject all things to himself. Last, uh, he is unchanging. You could also say immutable. That's the fancy word for it. He is unchanging. Hebrews 1, uh, 10 to 12 uh, you, Lord, this is, this is applying this text to Jesus. So you, Lord, that is Jesus, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Um, so although all things will change, although this world will pass away, he will remain. Uh, Hebrews thirteen eight is even more explicit. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he never changes Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And these are all divine attributes. These are not things that we could say of ourselves. We change every day. (laughs) We change even every minute, it seems like. But Jesus never changes. So these are uniquely divine attributes. Next, divine works. uh, Christ is described as doing things that only God can do. He created the world, John 1, 3. Uh, Through him, all things were made, and without him was made nothing that has been made. Uh, Colossians 1, 16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. This can't be said about any creature. This can't be said about any angel, uh, because angels would be included under the invisible, right? That's the invisible stuff, but Jesus created the invisible realm. And so Jesus is the creator. He is God. Uh, Providence, the upholding of creation. Uh, 
the upholding of creation. Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's the upholding, all things hold together. Uh, Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance and the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds, all th- he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's a unique divine work. The forgiveness of sins. This is very explicit in Mark 2. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus says to the crippled man, the paralytic, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And then uh, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so they testify that for the forgiving of sins is something that only God can do, but Jesus did it. And Jesus, perceiving in their heart what they said uh, to themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so Jesus is testifying with his miracle, he is testifying that he has the divine authority to forgive sins. It's a unique thing that only God can do. The sending of the Spirit is a unique divine work. John sixteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So he will send the helper, which is the Holy Spirit. The divine miracles, and I, by this, you know, I could give many examples, but I'll just say, all of the instances where Christ raised the dead, you know, Lazarus, when he healed the sick, when he calmed the storm, he has control over nature. He has control over death and sickness. Those are things that only God can have control over. Mere creatures, even angels, do not have that kind of power. Uh, he has the power over resurrection and judgment. We can see this in Matthew uh, 25, 31 to 32. This is that larger section where Jesus speaks about uh, the, the sheep and the goats. And it is the Son of Man. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd uh, separates the sheep from the goats. So it's Jesus who will judge all the nations when he returns. He has the power to judge the world. Uh, John 5.21 speaks of the resurrection Uh, He says, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Son has the power to give life, to give resurrection life. Acts 10, 42, uh, I think this is maybe Peter speaking. He says, and he had commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. And that's something that only God can do. I mean, we see that in the Old Testament. We see that God is described as judge of the world. But in the New Testament, Jesus is described as judge of the world. Last for divine works, the final disillusion and renewal of all things. So by this, I mean the bringing in of the new creation. Jesus will bring in the new creation. We see this in Revelation 21.5 most explicitly. He said to, uh, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That's Jesus saying, I am making all things new. Only God can make all things new, but here Jesus says, I am making all things new.
Last, Christ's divine worship. Uh, in scripture, we see that there are a couple times in the prophets, uh, in Revelation, I think 22 especially, where a prophet sees a vision, he sees an angel, and uh, he, he's so impressed by the vision, he's so in awe that he tries to worship the angel, and the angel says, no, stop it, I'm just a creature like you, I'm a fellow servant. But Jesus doesn't stop people when they try to worship him. We see this, uh, he says in John 5, 22, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all, may, that all may honor the son, just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And so the son and the father deserve the same honor, the same worship. Hebrews 1, 6, uh, speaking of Jesus Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Let all God's angels worship him, that is, Jesus, the firstborn. Uh, Revelation 5, 9. This is in the vision of the throne room in Revelation. And in the midst of that, we see the lamb who was slain and the, four, uh, the 24 elders and the four living creatures sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you were ransomed for uh, you were you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation and people, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So they're worshiping the Lamb who was slain. They're worshiping Jesus and saying, Worthy are you. And then later on in verse uh, 12, it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I don't think you could come up with a more full ascription uh, uh, of worship to someone. Uh, th yeah, this just obviously shows that they're worshiping Jesus, and that's something you can only do with God. Saints pray to Jesus and call on his name. Uh, you can see this in Acts 7.59 and 9.14. I won't go there, but uh, I think Acts 7.59 is when Stephen is being martyred, and he says, Jesus, um, into your hands I commend my spirit, something like that, or Jesus, uh, forgive them. Uh, he says something along those lines, uh, and he's praying to Jesus. That's something you can only do with God. We don't pray to angels. We don't pray to saints. We only pray to God, and yet in Scripture we, say that we, we, we see that we can pray also to Jesus. Uh, we believe in Jesus' name and are baptized in his name. Uh, we hope in Jesus. You can see this in those texts that I have on your outline. Uh, these are things that you can only do with God. These are parts of worship. Belief is part of worship. Praying is part of worship. Being baptized, part of worship. And so Christ receives worship that only God can receive. So these are, this is how we know that Jesus is the eternal God. He has divine names, attributes, works, and worship. Our next question is, what was Christ's divine activity before his incarnation? What was, what was he doing before he became incarnate? And of course, first, creation and providence, just as we saw above. Christ created all things and he upheld all things before he was incarnate. Second, we see this figure, the angel of the Lord. This, this angel of the Lord appears throughout early Old Testament history especially. Um, and the identity of this angel can be challenging because he's often introduced as the angel of the Lord and then later on in the narrative, he is just called the Lord. 
And so we have to ask the question, is this the angel or is this God himself? You can see this in Genesis 16, 7 and 13. Uh, this, is, uh, this is when the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar. It says the angel of the Lord found her and he said, uh, he spoke to her. And then later on, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. And so we see the angel of the Lord speaks to her, but when then she gives the name, she says the Lord spoke to her. A more striking example occurs in Judges 13, which includes the, um, the prophecy of Samson's birth. In Judges 13, we read that the angel of the Lord appeared to Samson's mother and prophesied the birth of a son. Then her husband spoke to the angel of the Lord, and when he asked what the angel's name was, the angel said, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? That sounds kind of divine, doesn't it? Then Samson's father offered a burnt offering to the Lord, and the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar, accepting the offering. In response, Samson's parents were afraid. His father said, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his mother answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering. But who did they see? They saw the angel of the Lord. And who accepted the burnt offering by going up in flames? It was the angel of the Lord. As I've already said, mere angels never accept worship. They would never accept a burnt offering like this angel did. Uh, it's clear that only God can be worshipped. But the angel of the Lord here accepted a burnt offering. And so this angel of the Lord is the Lord. He is God. And they recognized that. Another example is a really, it's the really famous story in Exodus where Moses speaks to the Lord from a burning bush and, and the Lord gives him his divine name, I am who I am, in Exodus 3. At the beginning of that, that appearance of God, it says, it, is, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the midst of a burning bush. And so, you know, if you were to ask somebody who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, you would say, oh, it was God. But then you actually look, it says the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord who is the Lord. The identity of this angel was a challenge to pre-Christian interpreters. This is actually really interesting. Uh, Philo of Alexandria, who is a Jewish interpreter and philosopher uh, who lived, who was probably born, uh, I think, two to three decades before Jesus was born, he identified the angel of the Lord as the divine logos, or word. Uh, the wisdom of Solomon identifies the angel of the Lord as wisdom herself. So wisdom of Solomon is an apocryphal book, um, and it, it, it identifies the angel of the Lord as wisdom. That's really fascinating because when we come to the New Testament, who is the, the logos? Who is the word and who is the wisdom? It's Jesus who is the word and the wisdom. And so early Christian interpreters also saw this unique, unique identity of the angel of the Lord who's closely identified with the Lord but yet distinct. And so the earliest Christian writers identified the angel of the Lord with our Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. And this obviously wasn't novel to Old Testament interpretation because just like Philo and the wisdom of Solomon identified the angel of the Lord as the word and the wisdom, New Testament writers identify Christ as the word and the wisdom and the angel of the Lord. Uh, in his dialogue with Trypho the Jew, Justin Martyr explicitly argues that the angel of the Lord was Jesus who revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac and who appeared in the burning bush to Moses. 
Uh, but this interpretation wasn't invented by early Christians. It wasn't like uh, they were just trying to win arguments, trying to win uh, Jewish people over to Christianity. New Testament writers explicitly identified Jesus with the angel of the Lord in the Exodus. We can see this in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that during the Exodus, Israel drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. He continues in verse 9 uh, to say, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. But the Old Testament repeatedly says that Israel tested the Lord God in the wilderness. You can see that in Numbers 14. And when they were destroyed by serpents, it was the Lord God that they were testing. So Paul identifies Jesus with the Lord and says he was active in the redemption of Israel from Egypt and leading them to the promised land. Jesus was active, giving Israel drink, giving them spiritual drink, and punishing them for their disobedience. This is even more clear in Jude 5. Jude 5 says, Jesus once saved a people from the land of Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not believe. He's saying that Jesus saved a people from Egypt. So what's going on here? Why do Paul and Jude speak of Christ as active in saving Israel from Egypt and then punishing those who didn't believe? Well, we can find part of our answer in Exodus 23, 20 through 21. In this uh, verse, the Lord told Moses, Behold, I send an angel before you. Do not rebel against him, for my name is in him. The Lord's name was in this angel, and that's a lot like saying the angel of the Lord, right? Uh, and this is why Paul and Jude could speak of Jesus as leading Israel out of Egypt, punishing those who were disobedient, etc. Because this angel of the Exodus, who has the name of the Lord in him, should be identified with the angel of the Lord, and then also with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul and Jude taught, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and this is what the early Christians like Justin Martyr taught. And the Exodus is one of the most important uh, events in Old Testament history. And so if we expect the pre-incarnate Christ to be active in the Old Testament, then we should look for him in the Exodus. And we find him as active uh, by, name in the, by, by the name of the angel of the Lord. So this is, uh, that was Christ's pre-incarnate activity. Next, what does it mean that Christ is the infinite God? What does it mean that he is God? Well, first, it means that Christ is of one substance with the Father. You could say homoousios. It's the Greek word for one substance. If Christ is truly God, that means he is equal to the Father. He's not subordinate in any way. He's not less than the Father in any way. That is what homoousios means. It means consubstantial or of the same substance, nature, essence, being. Scripture presents Christ as one with the Father. We saw that in uh, John ten thirty. He says, I and the Father are one. In his humanity, of course, Christ was subordinate to the Father. His human nature, he, he submitted to the Father. But in his deity, the Son has the same divine nature as the Father. They are equal of the same substance. The same infinite essence of God, which remains incomprehensible to our finite minds, is equal to the Father's, is, is equally the Father's and the Son's and the Spirit's. They all possess the same infinite divine essence. Our creeds and confessions do a great job of teaching this, so I'll 
I'll briefly read through some of them. Uh, first and most succinctly, the Shorter Catechism. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism 5, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, same in substance, equal in power and glory. And so it's saying the Son and the Father are one God, same in substance, equal in power and glory. Nicene Creed, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. That's where we get that, that language of homoousios or one substance. It's creedal language. Um, and this was in response to the heresies that we'll get to in a second. The Athanasian Creed, this creed is, it most fully and, and in detail lays out what you can and can't say about the Trinity. It's beautiful. Uh, I'll, I'll read just part of it. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing the essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal and the majesty co-eternal. None in this Trinity is before or after, none is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that's what we're getting at when I say they're of one substance. Uh, the second thing that we can say about this is that every attribute belonging to the Father also belongs to the Son. That's from Burkhoff. And that's just another way of saying the same thing, that if Christ is of the same substance as the Father, that means he has all the same divine attributes. He's eternal, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's never-changing, etc., and you can see, of course, all of those that we just talked about when we talked about Christ's divine attributes. If Christ has the same substance, he has all of the same attributes. So if God is love, then Christ is love, etc. And of course, I just mentioned there are some heresies relating to this question of whether Christ is of the same substance with the Father. And so there are two ways that we could err when speaking of Christ's deity two directions that you could go to the extremes on. We could make too much distinction between God and the Son, uh, between God the Son and God the Father, making the Son subordinate to the Father. That would be called Arianism. Or we could make too much unity between the Father and the Son, failing to recognize them as two distinct persons, which would be called modalism. And so we'll consider each in turn very briefly. Arianism is really the arch heresy when it comes to Christology. It was the main controversy that the Council of Nicaea was addressing. Arius was an elder in the fourth century early church uh, who was influenced by the writings of Origen concerning the persons of the Trinity. Arius so emphasized the unity of God and the distinction of the persons of the Trinity that he made the Son and the Spirit subordinate creatures to the Father. The Arian slogan was, there was a time when the Son was not. In other words, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is not eternal. He's not infinite. He was created at some point by the Father. At some point before creation, the Father brought the Son into the existence. The Father created the Son, and the Son created everything else, according to Arius. Arianism denies that the Son is of the same substance with the Father. That's why that word is so important in the Nicene Creed, the word homoousios, uh, of the same substance. 
Aries denied that. He said that the father and son have completely different substance. Uh, Semi-Arians didn't go as far, but they said that the father and the son have similar substances, like substances. They're not the same, they're similar. The next heresy, modalism, is also called Sabalianism, makes the opposite conclusion even though it starts in the same place. Sabalius was a third century elder who emphasized God's unity at the expense of the Trinity. Like Arianism, modalism is dedicated to the unity of God, but instead of subordinating the Son and the Spirit to the Father, modalism makes all three persons of the Trinity simply different manifestations of the same person. So in other words, the Trinity is not three persons in one God, it's one God with three modes of uh, rev revealing himself. Instead, instead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are just like masks that God can put on and take off. It's, it, they, they say that, you know, God was active as Father in the Old Testament, as Son in the New Testament, and as Spirit in the life of the church, rather than seeing them as three distinct persons. This is also a Christological heresy because it fails to recognize the Son as a distinct person and therefore has serious implications on the incarnation. It means that the Father was also incarnate and crucified. Both of these heresies gravely damage our doctrine of Christ and his incarnation. Arianism destroys the truth taught by Paul in Philippians 2.6 that Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but was born in the likeness of man. In Arianism, we no longer have the infinite God incarnated as man. Instead, a creature who is less than God was made man. Modalism destroys the truth seen in the Gospels that the Father sent the Son, and the Son did the will of the Father. The Father audibly testified to this on more than one occasion in his baptism and his transfiguration, speaking from heaven. How could the Father and the Son be the same person if one is the sender and the other is sent? If one is the Father, the other Son. If one is the voice testifying from heaven, and the other one is on earth being testified to. Modalism destroys the unique identity and role of the Son as mediator. No longer could we say with Paul, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. In modalism, like I've already said, the Father was also incarnate and crucified, which is called patripassionism. Both of these heresies were condemned by the Council of Nicaea, and both the Nicene and Athanasian creeds exclude these heresies. The Nicene Creed excludes Arianism when it says the Son is of one substance with the Father. It also excludes modalism by speaking of the unique personal properties of the Father and Spirit. In other words, the Father eternally begets the Son and sends the Spirit. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father and sends the Spirit, and the Spirit is eternally sent by the Father and the Son. These are unique personal properties that the Trinity has in eternity. The, Ash the Athanasian Creed excludes both heresies in, in many ways, but most distinctly, when it says we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons that denies modalism, nor dividing their essence, that divides Arianism, denies Arianism. Both of these heresies are also excluded by the biblical evidence of, for Christ's true deity, his possessing all the same attributes, performing all the same works, receiving the same worship as a father, but yet remaining distinct. In other words, all those passages that we read earlier. In our last couple minutes, I would like to close with some application concerning Christ's true divinity. The question is, why is it necessary that our Redeemer be truly God? 
This is most succinctly answered in the Heidelberg Catechism. Why must our mediator and deliverer also be true God? Answer, so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Westminster Larger Catechism says the same thing a little more, more fully. Why was it requisite that our mediator should be God? It was requisite that our mediator should be God that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. That he might give, worthy and, uh, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. These catechisms teach us the same thing, that our Savior had to be truly God in order to bear the fullness of divine judgment and save us from God's wrath. If Christ was not God, how could he save us? This is what Psalm 49 says. Truly no man can, can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly. No man can ransom another, so our Redeemer had to be truly God. But the price of our redemption was our lives, so our Redeemer had to be truly man in order for him to be able to die. Further, Jesus' suffering wasn't just physical or temporal, but final and eschatological. He suffered God's full wrath that the damned will suffer in hell. And yet he came through on the other side. No mere man could do that. No mere man could endure and live through God's eschatological wrath. Neither could Jesus do the things he did in the New Testament if he wasn't truly God, like healing the sick, forgiving sins, raising the dead. If Jesus wasn't divine, he wouldn't be worthy of our worship. But scripture reveals that Jesus is truly the infinite God who came to earth and was made like us in every way, yet without sin, to redeem us from sin and death. He is our Lord and our God who is worthy to receive glory. Just in the last minute, Consider this analogy that C.S. Lewis made to illustrate the incarnation. In Surprise by Joy, Lewis said, if Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. Hamlet could do nothing, could initiate nothing. He expanded in this on his essay, The Seeing Eye. Looking for God or heaven by exploring space is like, re is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare's one of the characters. Shakespeare is in one sense present at every moment in every play, but he is never present in the same way as Falstaff or Lady Macbeth. If God does exist, he is related to the universe more as an author is related to a play than as one object in the universe is related to another. And yet when we come to the Gospels, we learn that in fact, as Lewis says, the dramatist in introduced himself as a character into his own play and was pelted off the stage as an impudent imposter by the other characters. So when we affirm that Christ is truly the infinite God, we are acknowledging that the glorious, the glorious truth that the author of creation wrote himself into the story, so to speak, not only to meet us, but to be rejected and killed by us in order to save us and give us eternal life with him. So that's it for our lesson, Christ the Infinite God. Thanks for hanging on. We do not have time for questions, but please approach me after if you have questions.